This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell and the grief we are witnessing. The grief that today's guest is all too familiar with. The grief that has become epidemic here in the United States is more accurately called depression, as in the mood disorder that can become very, very serious and is far more than only being sad or unhappy. As Medical News Today puts it, sadness usually passes with time. If it does not pass, or if the person becomes unable to resume normal function, this could be a sign of depression. The National Institutes of Health explains, Feeling sad is a normal reaction to difficult times in life. Depression is different. It is a mood disorder that can affect how a person feels, but not just that, how they think and act. The National Institutes of Health lists symptoms as including anxiety, irritability, feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, helplessness, loss of interest, fatigue, difficulty concentrating, remembering, or making decisions, sleep and appetite changes, aches or pains with no clear physical cause, or thoughts of death or suicide, or even attempts at killing yourself. In other words, it's a lot more than just being sad or unhappy, which are perfectly appropriate ways to react. We have discussed depression many times in the past here on This Is Hell, and we'll have one of the people we have discussed it with in the past on the show in a few minutes. And what they will be telling us is breaking news. That somehow broke in the 1990s, then again in the early 2000s, and has been broken several times, yet somehow it's never made the headlines you would think it should. That news is the most popular and frequently prescribed antidepressant generally known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, like Prozac, Effexor, Cymbalta, Paxil, Luvox, Celexa, and Pfizer's Zoloft, are less effective in fighting depression than a placebo. In fact, they are better at causing sexual dysfunction than they are in helping with depression. Despite the United States Food and Drug Administration being fully aware of the evidence and studies that back up these claims, the drugs are still on the market and they are still being prescribed. Why? That's what we'll be trying to figure out when we have the return of psychologist Bruce E. Levine, who posted the Counterpunch article, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, The Final Nail in Psychiatry's Antidepressant Coffin. Bruce is a practicing clinical psychologist who writes and speaks about how society, culture, politics, and psychology intersect. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Free Thinking, and Radical Enlightenment. Bruce has appeared on This Is How several times in the past. Most recently, it's over five years ago, when we spoke with him in 2018 about his then-just-published book, Resisting Illegitimate Authority, A Thinking Person's Guide to Being an Anti-Authoritarian, Strategies, Tools, and Models. Find out more about Bruce at his website, brucelevine.net. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Rebecca Reidenauer. Rebecca, how have you been since the last time we did a show together a week ago? Pretty good, actually. Really? Oh, yeah. 
hitting the lottery or anything like that? Any big changes in your you know, life? No, some, sometimes I think it was just the birth. Like, yeah, I'm okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. So uh, after earlier this week, our bathroom sinks at my house stopping working, and we got them fixed, and then the heat went out, which we had repaired. I decided yesterday that I should probably just burn our house down. I did not know I had made that decision, but subconsciously, that's apparently what I did. Yesterday, for the first time in a long time, I decided to heat up a toaster pastry. It's not some big-name brand. It's new, supposedly out of the Bronx. supposed to be better for you, and it's terrible. You want a pastry for breakfast? Just go get some babka, heat it up, and be done with it. I heated up this awful pastry in a toaster oven that was given to us by my sister, who paid nothing because of some weird northern Michigan grocery store giveaway. We've had it for several years, and when she gave it to us, despite being new, it was already incredibly out of date. Like they had a hundred thousand of these toaster ovens somewhere, and they had to do something with them because toaster oven technology had passed it by decades ago. So I set it to uh, the toaster oven to lightly toast my toaster pastry. Several minutes later, it was the toaster oven had not dinged yet to tell me it was done. And there was smoke pouring out of our kitchen. I quickly ran into the kitchen, unplugged the toaster oven, grabbed an oven mitt, opened to open the door, pulled the tray with the now charcoal briquette appearing toaster pastry, and pulled the sizzling remains off the tray onto the counter. As it hit the counter, there was even more smoke and an acrid smell and a crackling sound, and I suddenly realized it was melting the countertop. I had to peel the toaster pastry coals off of the counter. I sent a picture of the burned toaster pastry to my non-wife who was at work, and uh, she said, well, you can't see this because of your color vision, but in the middle of that toaster pastry is a burning red coal. So, yeah, I guess I want to burn my home down. Becca, more important than my fantasies of burning down my home, which I may have already acted upon this week, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell, which you will get a crack at as a Patreon subscriber, is from listener Dan Kay, who posted his suggestion at Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Uh, this week's question from hell is, how long can this go on? How long can this go on? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of what whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can leave it at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hellhole. And if you are not a member, you should join. Or you can tweet it at us via X at This Is Hell Radio. Or you can post it in our Discord community. Or you can leave uh, your answer at our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. As Beck was saying, Patreon patrons get first crack at the question from hell as we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast, which this week goes live on Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time here in Chicago. Coming up, the story of antidepressants is really, really depressing. Becca will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth. Becca, what's Jeff talking about during the moment of truth this week? Jeff drags the atheist to Jesus. And Becca will also tell us who will be on next week's show. Maybe 
kind of. We'll see if anybody has confirmed between now and then. Staring into the abyss. So you don't have to. This is hell and the seemingly bottomless pit we will be gazing into today is the emptiness that can be depression and the sad story of the United States and how it deals with depression. Returning to This Is Hell is psychologist Bruce E. Levine, who posted the Counterpunch article, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, The Final Nail in Psychiatry's Antidepressant Coffin. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Free Thinking, and Radical Enlightenment. You can find out more about Bruce at his website, brucelevine.net. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Great to be back with you, Chuck. Always great having you on the show. Always an engaging conversation. I really, really appreciate you being back on. You write historically, there have always been some patients who report that any treatment for depression, including bloodletting, has worked for them. But science demands that for a treatment to be deemed truly effective, it must work better than a placebo or the passage of time without any treatment. This is especially important for antidepressant drugs, including Prozac, Zoloft, and other selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, as well as Effexor, Cymbalta, and other serotonin and non non Pinephrine, norepinephrine, <laughs> yeah, okay. norepinephrine, norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, because all of these drugs have uncontroversial troubling side effects. How can they be both uncontroversial and troubling? If they're troubling, then why haven't they led to becoming publicly controversial? That's a great question. I, I ask myself that all the time. When you have uh, uh, the effects on, say, for example, one troubling adverse side effect, which I talk about in that piece was uh, sexual dysfunction. And when you have with these antidepressants and most of these antidepressant studies, like 25 to 35 percent of folks uh, have some sort of a remission from depression. And when you take a look at the uh, their sexual dysfunction, it's more like 25 to 75 percent. In fact, one study showed people who had no sexual dysfunction before they had around over 50 percent of them had sexual dysfunction when they were taking these antidepressants. And so some people have, I I don't know, it's hard to sort of joke about this stuff, but you got to keep a sense of humor about everything, right, Chuck? And so some people have called these things, if you are probably naming these Prozac, Paxil, Effexor type of drugs, they would not be called antidepressants. They would be called anti-aphrodisiac drugs. If you were naming them in terms of what they're, what the thing about you, it affects the most. How long has this been known? And since it has been known uh, that these uh, antidepressant drugs are ineffective, have prescriptions for such drugs decreased? Did the evidence that antidepressant depressant drugs cause causing sexual dysfunction more than they cure depression, did that lead to a drastic drop in prescriptions as you'd think it would? No, because truth means very little in our society. I mean, as you guys know, sometimes I, you know, as as your audience would well know, it's like, you know, people knew there were, you know, that there was no connection between Saddam Hussein and, and Al-Qaeda. And, you know, people knew that there were no met weapons of mass destruction found in Iraq. It didn't matter. I mean, so the same thing happens with the psychiatric pharmaceutical 
pharmaceutical industrial complex. And that's, I think, one of the things that a lot of folks who are hip to, say, the military industrial complex and the energy industrial complex, there's a certain level of naivete that happens when they start talking about psychiatry and their partnership with drug companies, where the the truth and, and science really means very little. When you have uh, drug companies that pretty much have been next psychiatry that are making billions and billions of dollars off of these off of these products. You quote the New York Times writing in 2022. Uh, or actually, I'm sorry. You add. You uh, explain that the problem with these. Uh, let me start this whole quote again here, because you write that for nearly 20 years, psychiatry and big pharma have told us that while one antidepressant may not work for the majority of patients in the real world, doctors provide patients who have been failed by their n- initial antidepressant with another antidepressant, and if that fails, still another, and that this real-world treatment is successful for nearly 70% of the people. This narrative has been repeatedly reported by the mainstream media, including the New York Times in 2022. But you add that the problem with the nearly 70% story is that the research that has been used to justify it, a 2006 report on the results of the sequenced treatment alternatives to relieve depression, or STARD, as it's known, has also been disputed by researchers. Moreover, a recent analysis of previously undisclosed data reveals that STARD, owing to scientific misconduct, that dramatically inflated remission rates may go down in U.S. medical history as one of its most harmful scandals, if that is the case, one of the most harmful scandals in medical history in the United States. Did those who profited from it or benefited in any way also conduct the questionable research that got the drugs on the market and to the public in the first place. Many of them did, okay? And I think, you know, I I need to make this point because I'm sure there's certain people in your audience who have taken these Prozac, Paxil, Zolf drugs, and they're they're upset right now because they're saying, this really helped me and this saved me. So I wanna make it clear here that like, let's say for example, I don't know, we'll just pick a number. There's a thousand people in Old Town listening to your show right now. Well, we know statistically, if they're representative of the US population, about 130 of them are taking antidepressants, so about 13%. And out of that 130, we know that maybe 30, 40 of them um, ha- have benefited from them. But here's the here in science, that doesn't that's what we call an anecdotal report. That doesn't mean something is scientifically effective. So to kind of I think maybe to give some background to this uh, star D study that we're going to be talking about, the sequential treatment alternative to relieve depression, which has this been accused of being fraudulent and scientific misconduct, you have to kind of go back a little bit. When psychiatry was in real trouble they, in the 70s, 80s, they started to partner up with drug companies. And then they, had, they, they started telling us that depression is caused by this serotonin imbalance. We heard that over and over again, this chemical imbalance, even though by the 1990s, this theory had been disproven by the research. And I could talk to you about the research later if you're interested, but it took until 2022 for the mainstream media to start reporting that the serotonin imbalance was not true. But it was incredibly effective for the marketing of these drugs because people then began to use these antidepressants feeling like, well, it's like taking insulin for diabetes. They're doing the responsible thing. So what ends up happening is you have Prozac, Paxil, these SSRI drugs in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, making two, three, four billion dollars a year for these drug companies, huge amounts of money. But what happens by the late 90s, early 2000s, you start to see some research being done that's showing, you know what, these drugs really are not much more effective than a placebo. In fact, there's one study that got buried that I mentioned in that article, which was really interesting for me when I was writing 
my book about depression several years back. I said, well, how come everybody doesn't know about this study? It was a study where they compared uh, the SSRI Zola to a, to, uh, to a St. John's wort, which was an herb, to a placebo. And what happened in the study was the placebo actually did better than both. So for the placebo, there was a full response for the depression of 32%. For the uh, Zoloft, it was 25% response, and for the St. John's Ward, it was 24%. Well, this study got buried, and people are, well, how did this study get buried? Well, you look at the title of the of the study, it has nothing to do with Zoloft. It talks about St. John's Ward, and the person who uh, wrote up this study or did this study was uh, connected with uh, Pfizer, who makes Zoloft, and this is how the things happen. So this got buried, but then another study came out in 2002 that did get a lot of publicity, and because it was being done by one of the leading uh, experts in the placebo uh and placebo idea in the in the world from Harvard, a guy named Irving Kirsch, and this this study became so big it it ended up being talked about on 60 Minutes. Leslie Stahl interviewed Irving Kirsch, and the study was really interesting. What he did was he knew that a lot of the studies that were being shown that these antidepressants were not all that effective. These drug companies were making sure weren't published. So, but he also knew Kirsch knew that every study. Has to get uh, it has to get registered with the FDA, and so he used the Freedom of Information Act. You know, it's ridiculous for me that you'd have to use the Freedom of Information Act, but he you have to, and he used that to get access to 47 studies, Prozac, Zoloft, all of these antidepressants. And what he showed was that really in the majority of trials, the placebo, um, you know, the the, the the drug, the antidepressant, didn't outperform the placebo. And that what he said was that in aggregate, it was clinically negligible. In other words, there might be some slight statistical di difference if you add up all the scores in favor of the antidepressant, but it was like nothing any kind of patient would, would recognize. So it was clinically negligible. Well, this became huge. So psychiatry becomes, gets in, you know, they're feeling really, again, once again, threatened. And so this is now we're leading up directly to this study that I talked about in this article, this sequential treatment alternative to relieve depression, which is, you see it called star uh, asterisk D, so star D. And so what they decided was like, okay, we're admitting, yeah, that for everybody, for people who take these antidepressants, you go to your doctor, you get prescribed Zolo, that only 25 to 35% of you are going to do better. But we, we're telling you that if you keep going, keep trying, you know, like in the real world, you keep going back and try another antidepressant, get another drug added to that, that what's going to end up happening, you know, you, you, you're going to do great. And so they ended up, like, they actually predicted it was going to be like 73 or 74% of people would have these cumulative remission rates after a year if they kept going back. So they do this study. There's four different stages. Everybody who's depressed starts out with Selexa, okay, the SS, that's an SSRI antidepressant. If they don't remit, you know, they don't get better with their depression, they're moved on to another treatment, another treatment. So there's four stages. And at the end of the four stages, they publish this study, they published a report, and they say 67% of people had these cumulative remission rates, which then gets translated in the mainstream media as to almost 70%. Okay, so this is the story that you hear over and over and over again, but it's been from the very get-go, and we can get to this in a second here, from the very minute it was published, people were criticizing it um, from even off of the data that they were seeing. And then the article I was talking about was there was other things that we didn't know about that made made this made this uh, report of nearly 70% even more ridiculous. You say this was all started because of uh, psychiatry was having trouble in the 70s. 
What was the trouble it was having in the 70s? And is it having trouble again today because of their solution to that trouble, which was using pharmaceuticals when it comes to psychiatry? So if you remember back, and you and I are old enough, I don't know how much of your audience, Chuck, but in the 1970s, like it, the, the psychiatry was in deep trouble. You saw like the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, was winning the Oscars, uh, best picture in the mid 1970s, which is really a movie about authoritarian psychiatry and crazy psychiatrists who were really doing a lot of damage. And people loved it back then because it was a much more anti-authoritarian era. Also big things were happening in the 70s were that gay activists were protesting at the American Psychiatric Association. Why? Because they they did not want to have homosexuality continue to be listed as a mental illness. And so they successfully, their activism was successful and they got it abolished in 1973. And so this was not only a great victory for gay activists, but it was hugely important for people in the scientific world and even the general public because it became clear to them, like, wait a minute, you can't do political protests and get rid of cancer or diabetes or all. If you can do political protests and get rid of something as an illness, maybe it's not really a medical illness. Maybe it's something cultural, something political. So there are a lot of other things going on in the 1970s that psychiatry was sort of becoming a laughing stock, and they knew it. And, you know, they were getting threatened by other kind of professions, social workers, psychologists, other kinds of work, folks out there. And it was like people say, like, what do you guys have to offer? So that's when they decided at the very top of psychiatry and their their guild is something called the American Psychiatric Association. They published this diagnostic manual called the DSM. They decided we really have to like make a better, greater effort to show we're just like every other MD doctors out there. And then ultimately they make a decision and it's, you know, they're proud of it that we're going to partner up with these drug companies because what we have to offer here as MDs that all these other mental health professionals don't have to order, offer is these prescriptions for these drugs. And then more and more, these drug companies were paying these uh, psychiatrists huge amounts of monies to front for them, to talk up how great their drugs were. And so more and more, they became this psychiatric pharmaceutical industrial complex. And by it, and one of the interesting thing, a lot of interesting things happened for me going over this era was that in the 60s, 70s, it was widely viewed as sort of a right wing view that serious mental illness was caused by bi biology, chemistry, and genetics, because it was kind of an, it was your fault, it was your individual defect. So it's kind of viewed as a right-wing view. And then it, nowadays, it's become like a lot of, it's NPR, like at least full left liberals want, want to buy into this biochemical medicalizing of all our emotional suffering, as opposed to, which hopefully we can get to later, what we know is really associated with depression, which is nothing, there's no findings at all in terms of serotonin levels or parts of our brain. And I could go through all this research with you, but we know a lot of political issues, poverty, unemployment, we can go on, involvement in the criminal justice system. These are the things that are most associated with something like depression. You write that among the few journalists in the world who have recognized the implications of star d for the treatment of millions of people is robert whitaker and in his september 2023 report the star d scandal scientific misconduct on a grand scale whitaker stated that the protocol violations and publications of a fabricated principal outcome the 67 percent cumulative remission rate that you were just talking about are evidence of scientific fraud that rises to the level 
of uh, scientific misconduct that rises to the level of fraud. In fact, you start your article with a quote from Robert Whitaker, publisher of madinamerica.com, who said on January 3rd of this year, 2024, if the major media picks up on this story, they will have the chance to report on what arguably is the worst and most harmful scandal. In America, and just really briefly, Robert is a George Polk and National Association of Science Writers Science in Society Journalism Award-winning medical and science newsroom reporter. He's the author of several books about psychiatry, including Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine, and the Enduring Mistreatment of the Mentally Ill. Just so people know, in other words, it, it appears Whitaker has the credentials that would suggest this is trustworthy reporting, and his articles have been reported on by major outlets in the past, including the Washington Post and Boston Globe. So your article at Counterpunch went live nearly three weeks ago. Have you seen any major media pick up on this story yet? Not that I'm aware of, okay? And this has you know, been going on for quite some time. Just to kind of, as we're moving into this this study that, that, that Bob Whitaker is talking about here, let me give you a little bit of like how it's how those of us who've been on top watching this study, you know, and it's and its influence, you know, how, how all of this stuff has played out. So when the study comes out in 2006 and they're claiming the 67 percent of cumulative remission rate immediately and the major media did not cover this at all, which was really easy for them to cover, was that in that same issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry, which is a establishment psychiatry journal is published by the American Psychiatric Association. But in that same journal, there's a psychiatrist, a guy named Nelson, who offers an editorial saying like, look, these guys are saying 67%. But if you look at their relapse rates at each stage of their the remission, if you add those in, it really should be something like, and, and you know, you include that, you shouldn't be saying 67%, you should be saying 43%. So this is establishment psychiatry is all even saying, this is not any of your critics like Robert Whitaker or guys like myself. So I started to kind of get into this study more and more and going like, what else, what else is problematic? And a guy uh, who we haven't mentioned yet, who's really spent the last 20 years trying to dig in on this study, who is a guy named Ed Piggott, and he's a psychologist. And by 2010, he was getting more and more data on the study, trying to sort out some of these horrible looking graphs in the original report, trying to figure out what was really happening. And it turns out that of the 4,041 4, people who start this study, okay, what we're talking about is really at the end of the study, only 3%, so a little over 100 are ascertained to have been recovered, stayed well, and remained in the study. So documented, all right? Now, maybe there were some more, okay? Maybe there were some dropouts who did better, but we really have only you know, documented 3%. This is what he found. And, and, and this was kind of, you know, again, uh, you know, laughable because we also, we know from naturalistic reports on depression. So in other words, taking a look at people who are depressed and giving them no medication, taking a look at them a year later, 85% of them are in remission and in recovery. So this was something that we'd already known, those things. But then what ends up happening in 2023, and this is what Whitaker's talking about, and this is, Piggott does another reanalysis because what he does, he now has access to more raw data. And he asks us to the actual protocol that these researchers who are doing this study, study you know, we're using. And what he discovers is like, wait a minute, you're saying out of that 4,041 people who are in this gigantic and 
you know, it's this huge study, $35 million National Institute of Mental Health study. And out of that, out of those original 4,041, that what, what was clear was that 931 of them didn't meet the requirements for depression. So they, they were either not, they, they, they weren't depressed enough to be counted, to be, uh, to be assessed as being depressed. And they were early on eliminated from the study. But what Whitaker and Piggott noted, saw was that they got thrown back in. So this is one big thing that this is what Whitaker's talking about. This is fraud. This is an obvious intent to deceive. Now, there's other things that, you know, you know I'll let your listeners decide whether it's fraud or, or research, mis scientific misconduct or just crappy research. But they did other things, too, other shenanigans to inflate this, this recovery rate including change the primary measure of, of what they were using to measure de, uh, depression, to, to make it, change it from what they, the protocol called for to some other measure that inflated the rate. They also changed their protocol ideas of what they were going to, how they were going to view dropouts. Uh, you know, initial, initially they were going to view them as people who, who shouldn't be counted as remission. And ultimately they come up with this theoretical remission rate to jack up inflate, inflate the recovery rates. But with all of these, so if you stop doing all of these shenanigans, what Piggott said, and just go with their original protocol, it should not be 67%. It should be 35%. And their original protocol, I should also add, which I didn't say this in the article, was that in that original protocol was problematic because it didn't even include people who relapsed. Okay, so this whole study is really like beyond a joke. I mean, I don't know what you want to call it. And the real tragedy is, is not only do the mainstream media keep reporting it, New York Times keeps reporting it. You know, this is why, you know, even though we know now that the serotonin imbalance doesn't have anything to do with depression, we know depression still works. They wrote, they, they published this article in 2022 because of the STAR study. New Yorker has reported the same thing. And, 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 and as bad as that, this, this study is included for every psychiatrist. One of their textbooks is something called 50 Studies Every Psychiatrist Should Know. And it's in that. That book. So, you know, here we have this, obviously, you know, at the best thing that you could say with this about this study is it's like pathetically, scientifically, and we'll let maybe one day a jury will decide whether it's actual fraud. So prohibitions against drugs being advertised on TV in the United States started weakening in 1985. By 1987, even prescription pharmaceuticals, or I'm sorry, 1997, even prescription pharmaceuticals could have direct-to-consumer advertising, including on, t on TV. If this is the worst and most harmful scandal in American medical history, how significant of a role do you think allowing pharmaceutical advertising on TV uh, contributed to that scandal? Would banning such advertising protect us from another scandal like that of antidepressants? Well, I think that that is a big part of the problem because you asked me earlier, you know, the, the question of how, how come mainstream media is not reporting this? Well, you just answered it there. You know, uh, if you take a look, especially on television, but throughout the, the mainstream media, they're usually supported by drug company advertising. And these guys are not stupid. I mean, at CBS, NBC or N all these other outlets, mainstream media, they know if they did, they started doing some serious reporting on like what we're talking about here, what Whitaker's reported on, what I'm talking about in that article, you know, drug companies would say, okay, you could go ahead and do that reporting, you know, but we'll just put our ads on somewhere else. <laughs> and it'll cost these mainstream media, you know, millions, maybe billions of dollars over several years of time. So that that's the problem of direct-to-consumer advertising. 
these drug companies not only now have lots of power over psychiatrists and 75% of them have taken something from drug companies nowadays, over 60 of them are taking a million a year from drug companies, but maybe even as important or more important is it's given them huge power over the mainstream media um, who doesn't want to lose this huge source of revenue, drug company advertising. It's just a real shame that we have that obvious of a conflict of interest and in something that's incredibly important that the media should be doing, that the news media, the press should be doing here in the United States, and that is telling us about what is happening when it comes to threats to public health. So uh, do why don't we recognize as the public consuming media, consuming news, why don't we, we recognize the major conflict of interest that is clearly happening within journalism today in the United States when it comes to the medical industry? Well, I think some people do recognize it, um, but really, you know, Chuck, what's the difference really? What it's, it's our entire society is replete with these conflict of interest, right? So, you know, maybe, you know, all of these politicians are spending all day, all their careers just raising money from, you know, kind of Fortune 500 companies and beholden to them and telling themselves that, you know, that that doesn't affect the, how they vote. And so this idea of conflict of interest or what you want to maybe call institutional corruption is just really part of the fabric of life. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, from a guy like me and maybe a guy like you, Chuck, when I tell folks like, well, the head of the FDA, you know, this guy named Gottlieb, you know, he, uh, you know, he, 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 after he was there at the FDA, a few months after he left, he, he be, became on, he went on the board of directors for Pfizer, you know, which was one of the easiest jobs in the world, being on the board of directors, making a ridiculous amount of money. And, and of course, it sent the message to everybody who was at the FDA, high level people, that, hey, if you if you're kind to us here, you're going to get this nice, you know, cake kind of job of being on a board of directors of some major drug company afterwards. So for a guy like me, this is big news, you know, but it's not in American society because people have just sort of gotten used to the fact that we are incredibly corrupt. I mean, we're moving at the and this to this regard, we're, we're moving into what people used to use the term. I don't know if they still use it in any term like a banana republic. I mean, you know, every one of these, you know, when you talk to these folks, say at drug companies, they're going like, hey, our obligations is to our stockholders to make as much money as possible. And if we can legally and sometimes illegally, I'll talk to you about what they actually do that is illegal. But most of what they're doing is legal institutional corruption. You know, if they if, if they can spread a million here around to psychiatrists, to the major media and influence the public, they're going to do it. OK. And the only thing that they usually get busted on, which, you know, for them is the cost of business is when they send their drug re drug representatives out in the world and they uh, market off label that so they try to get doctors to prescribe a drug that hasn't been you know prescri hasn't been approved by the FDA for that use and so that's where they get these billion dollar fines but hell if the drugs are making over the course of their lifetime 10 20 billion dollars for them that's the cost of business but this all this other stuff we're talking about of like buying influence all over the place with them with psychiatry and with the mainstream media this is not even illegal in our in our society. So we have this society that's replete with institutional corruption at every level. And I think, like I say, a lot of folks out there, you know, and I, I even talk, I write mostly on the left. I write in places like Counterpunch, Truthhead, all these kinds of places. But it's it's an area, I think, I don't know why, maybe you can tell me, Chuck, why the, by people on the left want to believe that, that that's not the same as the in, military industrial complex, the energy industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, that, 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 that certainly that kind of stuff can't go on there. But of course it does.
Yeah, of course it does. You were mentioning that uh, study about St. John's wort earlier as one of the uh, drugs that was being tested. Uh, you, there were SSRIs being used. There was a placebo being used. What do, and then St. And none of these uh, were seen as effective. In fact, the most effective of all of the drugs that were supposed to be antidepressants was the placebo. What does that say about St. John's wort, which some may consider a natural alternative to big pharma drugs, and SSRIs, which are a big pharma drug, when a placebo, essentially nothing, a pill made to have no effects, is better than any medicine, whether it is what some may consider natural or unnatural. What does it say about natural as well as synthetic uh, prescription drugs for depression? Well, certainly these drugs that are more you know, herbal drugs like St. John's wort, the, the best thing that you could say about them is they don't have anywhere near as horrible adverse effects as these uh, uh, SSRIs and SSNRIs. And that if you take a look at the history of people trying to deal with this thing called depression, um, which was once called melancholia, it just, you know, all of those symptoms that you listed in the beginning show this sort of horrible kind of phenomenon, this horrible place to be, that historically people have come up with almost everything that you can imagine. And for a certain percentage of people, you know, they reported being successful. And that's part of why, I mean, bloodletting hung around for almost 3,000 years. Why? Because, well, some of it was because people said, hey, this stuff worked. And they you know, go back to their doctors and they say, hey, thank you, doctor, for doing that bloodletting. I feel much better. Okay. So sometimes you're, and, and, and these SSRIs or these psychiatric drugs will work for a couple of reasons for that group of 25, 30% of people. One is because they're functioning as a placebo. People expect or want something to work or anything and it's gonna work. They'll work because just ordinarily the passage of time, you know, they're, they're gonna feel better. We know that historically with depression that it, you know, when external events change for some people, they're gonna feel less depressed. And if they happen to be taking one of these antidepressants, when all of a sudden they get a job after they've been unemployed, they're gonna say, well, maybe, they feel better. The other reason why a lot of these psychiatric drugs and really they're under the category of psychoactive or psychotropic, you know, which means they affect neurotransmitters, which includes not just Prozac, Paxil, it includes you know, benzodiazepines, it includes marijuana, cannabis, it includes alcohol, it includes all of those kinds of drugs will tend to like take the edge off, okay? Some of them have different adverse effects. Some of them are more upper, some of them more downer. But any kind of psychoactive drug will likely kind of more disconnect you some a little bit from what you're feeling. So that sense of caring less about what the heck you're feeling for some people feels like an antidepressant. But even with all of those things, it's sort of interesting for me. Um, actually, if you were doing real science, you would be using something called active placebos instead of instead of these sugar pill placebos. So people would have a more difficult time penetrating what we call the blind there. But drug companies want people to not guess that they're taking a placebo. It, it, that's another way they inflate these, these drug results. But even with all of this stuff, even with these drug companies, companies dice loading these studies, even with these shenanigans that I talked about with Star D. It's sort of amazing to me that still these antidepressants don't do any better generally than, than a placebo or the passage of time. 
we or are even worse than the passage of time. We are speaking with psychologist Bruce E. Levine, who posted the counterpunch article, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, the Final Nail in Psychiatry's Anti-Depression Coffin. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Free Thinking and Radical Enlightenment. You can find out more about Bruce at his website, brucelevine.net. Bruce, whenever we have had a conversation with you or other guests on SSRIs, including the psychopharmacology scholar Dr. David Healy, author of Let Them Eat Prozac, The Unhealthy Relationship Between the Pharmaceutical Industry and Depression, who we talked to back in 2003. Whenever we've talked about it in the past, someone always comes up to me afterwards and says, yeah, sure, SSRIs are bad, but that doesn't mean all antidepressants are bad, and some people have other mental disorders that can benefit from drugs due to some they always say chemical imbalance. Is it important for us to distinguish between antidepressants and what are called antipsychotics or mood stabilizers, drugs meant to help those with personality disorders, treating schizophrenia or bipolar disorder? Well, all these drugs are different drugs, okay? So the uh, antidepressants are, are more, you know, they're drugs that more maintain or, or there are sort of more stimulant kind of things. So they, they keep more serotonin within a neurosynapse or these SNRIs we were talking about before, the FX or Cymbalta, they're going to keep more, uh, so, you know, more of a norepinephrine, another neurotransmitter and serotonin. Then you have something called Wellbutrin that keeps more dopamine within a neurotransmitter. And I suppose if you're taking all of them, then you're coming close to cocaine because that's what cocaine does. It, it maintains, it keeps more serotonin, more norepinephrine and more dopamine within a neurotransmitter, whereas those other drugs that you're talking you know, about for people who are being diagnosed with schizophrenia or psychoses, they're taking these drugs that reduce, lower the levels of those of dopamine, especially people, drugs like Zyprexa and, and Seroquel and Risperdal and what we used to be way back, people would talk about Thorazine, Haldol. And so here's the big thing, okay? When we're talking about this whole chemical imbalance theory, it's just real important to know that in terms of schizophrenia, they used to have this chemical imbalance theory that people who are schizophrenic have too much dopamine, so we're going to give them all these you know, drugs that shut down dopamine, and that, that'll work for them. And, and that theory was disproven way long ago in the 70s, 80s. And then there was this theory that I was mentioning before, this idea that people who are, de- you know, people who are depressed have not enough serotonin. And so therefore, we have to give them these serotonin enhancing kind of drugs, ser- drugs that maintain the serotonin within the neurotransmitters, SSRIs. But again, this theory was just a marketing, a great marketing idea. It was disproven in the 1990s. And even psychiatric establishment, uh, uh, one of the uh, mag- issues the uh, periodicals that I talk about in that article, the Psychiatric Times, which is more willing to expose psychiatrists to bad news than some of the others. They said in 2011, like no well-informed psychiatrist has ever believed in this chemical imbalance theory. And, and But it took a long time, as I mentioned in that article. The way things seem to work in psychiatry is they come up with these theories, they come up with these drugs, you know, everybody gets excited about it. And then you know, what ends up happening is like the research almost immediately disproves it. It takes psychiatrists 10 to 20 years to then themselves admit it and acknowledge it. And then it happens another, takes another 10, 20 years for the mainstream media to report this. And this is what's happened with the chemical imbalance theory. Finally, in 2022, because of this big study that was done by this dissident critical thinking psychiatrist, Joanna Moncrief, that got picked up by the mainstream media. And I've got some idea why the mainstream media finally started reporting it. 
Then psychiatry was forced to all of them say like, oh, yeah, that stuff's not true. And they were going around what I would call gaslighting, saying like, we never said this stuff. It was the drug companies. <laughs> Although, you know, so the same kind of thing, I think the same process will ultimately happen with these SSRI antidepressants as you, some of you more politically astute psychiatrists are already moving on to other kinds of things. So they're using psychedelics, they're using ketamine, all this kind of stuff. So is that what they're doing right now in the wake of SSRIs being shown to fail when it comes to antidepressants? Are they still seeking a drug to fix depression? Is that the key problem with this whole situation that you just can't fix depression with a drug? Right. And that's the dilemma. You've hit at the core of things, Chuck. This is great that we've got to it is think about it. If you're, you know, this kind of want to be a doctor, the psychiatrists want to keep their medical model, want to believe that what they have going for them is this kind of medical, biological, chemical, electrical idea of depression. You're not going to let it go. And that's what's happened with them. So they keep switching drugs. And so now the, you know, the cutting edge psychiatrists, you could hear them all, are pushing, you know, uh, pushing like using a this ketamine, which you well know, it's a this party drug. This is a, a dissociative um, kind of uh, anesthetic that 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 gets you woozy. I mean, the major primary uh, 70, 75% of people are, just feel woozy and spacey when they take this stuff. But yeah, of course, for some people who use this drug, they're going to say, yeah, it makes me less depressed, you know? And so your drug companies have got this uh, nasal spray called Spravato or Escatamine, this, uh, you know, to, that the, of, of, uh, of, of ketamine, and that's been approved, that the shaky FDA approval process that I talk about in that article, and I hyperlink to that shakiness. But so yeah, they're moving on to to other other kinds of things. You got even establishment psychiatrists admitting, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, you can't be a bigger big shot than this guy named Thomas Insull. He was a you know 2002 to 2015 director of the NIMH and saying, yeah, I guess our stuff, our outcomes are abysmal, they're bleak, and he's you know starting to talk about yes, yeah, psychedelics you know are are, are 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 like the thing to go to. But again, we can talk about it. We probably this is not that we don't have enough time here to talk about it. But the actual research on these drugs you know, doesn't sh show, it's pretty disappointing. Although, again, I'm sure there are people out there in their audience that they were depressed for 10 years and they went on some LSD, you know, trip or they had, you know, something happened and it, it changed their life and they're feeling better. But again, you have to understand in the whole history of using any kind of substance for depression, that's always happened. Like I said, going back to bloodletting. And of course, if they, you know, besides drugs, they're gonna, they're in the process of insults, bring, wanting to bring back more electroshock treatment, because again, this is a kind of biomedical procedure that doctors could perform. So they're always gonna be focusing on that and not talking about other things that really, the, the research, and I, I would just call common sense, tells you it's gonna be much more beneficial in terms of helping people who are depressed. So just a few more questions for you, Bruce. Did, do we know what the side effects are of using multiple SSRIs? And if we do, do they differ any from the side effects caused by any single SSRI? Because you hear about the side effects and the warnings of these drugs, but you never hear if combined with this drug in those ads, what those side effects might be. So do we know the side effects of using several SSRIs? Well, one side effects 
for sure we're gonna we know is that the more that you're taking these drugs and this happens for people all the time they go to their doctor their Paxil their Prozac their Celexa is not working so they either get the dosage up or they get it added on or some Wellbutrin and you know some other kind of different kind of antidepressant maybe not an SSRI but an SNRI or some other kind of antidepressant and what ends up happening is when people finally decide like you know that they want to start to taper off you know, move off of these drugs because they're having all these problematic side effects or they feel like they, they don't need them anymore, they're not really helping. It, it becomes the more that you're more of these drugs that you're taking, your body builds up more tolerance to them, more dependency, and it becomes more difficult to come off. And so that that's why, and again, psychiatry buried this hugely important issue for years, that there's incredibly difficult uh, withdrawal process that goes on for lots of people trying to come off of these drugs. And psychiatry denied this when these SSRIs came up, first came out. Then they finally started to use euphemisms called you know, SSRI discontinuation syndrome. And only recently you've got people talking about it. And now you have psychiatrists out there specialized. That's their specialty, how they help people withdraw off of these medications. And so, yeah, to get back to your question, the more that you're, the more of these drugs that you're taking, the more difficult that process of, is withdrawing off of these. So what kind of harm may have been done to the public in prescribing antidepression drugs to patients while knowing full well they're less effective than a placebo while having horrible side effects like sexual dysfunction? What has been the public health crisis, if you will, that has been caused by allowing these antidepressants to be on the market even knowing, while knowing that they are ineffective? Well, there's a couple of different levels, I would say, to the crisis. And maybe the, on one level, that the area that a lot of your audience is may, maybe more interested in is just on the general political societal level, which is one of, like, if you can convince everybody that they're, everybody's getting more and more depressed out there, and the numbers, the suicide numbers, the depression numbers keep going up and up, despite the fact that more and more people are on these antidepressants. But if you can keep convincing people that this is like an individual biochemical issue here, then you you... You help people like ignore the political realities that are causing people to be more and more depressed. You ignore, for example, you know, issues of, you know, we know that poverty, you know, financial poverty is highly associated with depression. As I mentioned before, involvement in the criminal justice system. We know that being an alienating work, we know another thing, a really hugely important thing, how important childhood trauma is connected with depression and a lot of other uh, emotional suffering and physical problems. That is becoming more and more widely known. But what is not being talked about is that why is there so much trauma in, in a childhood trauma? Why is 25% of women being sexually abused when they're young. And this is a Kaiser Permanente study of middle class, upper middle class women, and 30% of you know guys, uh, men being physically abused. Why is that happening? Well, a big part of that reason is people, parents are living crappy lives with, and you know they're doing alienating jobs, they're disposable out there. And so their frustration tolerance is very low. And so when kids act like kids, they're more likely to be abusive. So at one level, I'm just talking about one level at the general political level, this is problematic for our, for our whole political, societal, mental health here, because we're not dealing with some of these social components. The other, another level is, you know, what we've talked about before, there's these horrific adverse effects. Uh, people move, you know, they're depressed. And more and more, by the way, you, you listed, you, you talked about at the beginning of this show, 
all of these symptoms for depression, you know, as if to say only the really seriously depressed people with those major heavy symptoms are put on these SSRIs. Well, it's just not the case. You go to your primary care doctor and he's got a few minutes with you and he asks you, how are you depressed? And they'll say, I'm depressed. And that's pretty much sometimes what it takes to get put on these SSRIs. So a lot of people out there who are just sort of mildly depressed or, or significantly unhappy, you know, and nobody's asking them what they're going through some period of their life, and they're put on these drugs. And we know over the long term, you know, that it makes matters worse. Maybe at the, over the, in the short term, some people, 25 to 35% of people say, hey, this helped me, and they get off the drugs, and it's no big deal. But we know a lot of other people, um, it, it creates more long-term problems generally. Um, and so that that's part of the issue. And, you know, things like, you know, that psychiatry denied the whole sort of sexual dysfunction thing. I mean, I still have a part time practice, Chuck. I talk to it's, it breaks my heart. I talked to these, especially these young guys in their 20s and 30s, and they just were mildly depressed and they were put on these SSRIs. And now they're, you know, talking about, look, they finally got a girlfriend, you know, for the first time in their life in their late 20s, and they can't perform sexually. And it's like they're feeling awful about themselves. And there's, and they're putting it together in their own head. And, and see, without even knowing the research is asking, I wonder if it has anything to do with these Zoloft, Paxil, or whatever I've been taking. And the research shows, yeah, that's true. Okay, and by the way, there's even another syndrome. I hate to, you know, this is hell, so I could say it here on this is hell, but that even after you stop taking these SSRIs, there's something called post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. So even after you've stopped taking it, you know, they finally have admitted this, although researchers knew about this stuff, you know, 25 years ago. Is being bad at capitalism, Bruce, is being poor, Is has that been pathologized by psychiatry in the United States as a mental disorder? Sort of, sort of, because, you know, the reality is, is that if you are, um, and we've got, I, you know, studies I talk about all the time, if you're really living like way below the federal poverty level, and there's good reasons for you, me, anybody to miserable, I mean, Chuck, you and I, if we were living at that level, we were like all of a sudden we were on parole, on probation, we've been unemployed for a couple of years. I mean, we're going to be more likely to be at least mildly depressed or maybe majorly depressed. And and so, you know, the idea that that capitalism or whatever you want to call it, our financial system, are, you know, has nothing to do with our mental state is ridiculous. OK, and this, again, you know, sort of breaks my heart because the psychology that I went into that I got interested in in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, there were this was not radical things to be said back then. You know, how you had people like Eric Fromm, a lot of other folks who were renowned in, in the field who, who would say these things. And so now nowadays, I, I find myself when I go on a lot of podcasts, especially with a lot of younger guys, I talk about, they, they, they hear me, I'm sounding radical. You know, it should not be radical, this stuff I'm saying. <laughs> Bruce, it's always great having you on the show. One last question for you. Psychologist Bruce E. Levine posted the Counterpunch article, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud, The Final Nail in Psychiatry's Anti-Depression Coffin. His most recent book is A Profession Without Reason, The Crisis of Contemporary Psychiatry, Untangled and Solved by Spinoza, Free Thinking and Radical Enlightenment. And you can find out more about Bruce at his website, brucelevine.net. And you can find our interview with Bruce from back in 2018 when we discussed his book 
Facebook, Resisting Illegitimate Authority. At our website right now, thisishell.com, just search on his last name and you can find that interview for free at our site. So, one last question for you, Bruce, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. We've been talking this morning about how Big Pharma has so much influence and power over the government when it comes to the FDA, over the media when it comes to uh, you know advertising, over academia when it comes to, as Dr. Healy has argued many times in the past, that the pharmaceutical industry has a pervasive influence on academic medicine. So here we are talking about how Big Pharma has such a huge, powerful influence over our society. And one of those big pharma companies, Pfizer, was the one that manufactured and distributed the COVID vaccine. So to you, does it make sense that there was so much skepticism when it came to the COVID vaccine? And what can we do to make it so that kind of skepticism doesn't happen when there is an effective drug that could be stopping a pandemic? Right. I mean, that's the price that you pay uh, for or like when you have a, 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 an industry that people more and more are seeing as pretty corrupt. I mean, if you took a look 30, 40 years ago, people you know, working for the pharmaceutical company, people were proud of it. You know, it was like had, you know, if you looked at opinion polls, you know, people thought positively about it. And with all of this stuff that we've been talking about here, the opinion of pharmaceutical companies and what they're all about, that they're just one more capitalistic enterprise out there, no different than and Exxon oil companies and, Mil- and Raytheon and all these, that's going to be the price that you pay in terms of public health, that people, when you hear something like uh, like uh, people who are talking about, well, like everybody needs to be taking this vaccine, it's important for you know public health, you're going to have skepticism. I think you would be, you would be the not a critical thinker to like scratch your head and say like, okay, is this really true? And that's what I talk to people all the time about. And that's what, you know, it was a big issue for me clinically, you know, you, you know, when this whole COVID thing started happening, when I have a lot of critically thinking clients, you know, who, who go like, wow, you know, I'm trying to sort this out. Is this, is this one of those things like measles vaccine, which is a great idea, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or is this one of these, uh, you know, pharmaceutical company money-making, uh, you know, garbage things and 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 it made it, it really stresses people out out there trying to kind of sort that out is this a good drug or is this one of these you know drugs that are just this money-making thing so yeah it, it this creates much more anxiety and stress in our society so how can people make that decision it's very difficult i mean because again you know you take a look at what ed pickett and robert whitaker had to do to get to the bottom of this star d study it's like using freedom of information act you know combing you know through raw data it's very difficult because what you're what you're what people are looking at you've got to be like there's like a few medical reporters <laughs> In, in America, maybe even the world, guys like Robert Whitaker, who number one, feel comfortable taking a look at science. Number two, understand science. Number, number three, are willing to like say, hey, look, we don't have the, they're not giving us enough data to, to make this decision. You know, to have that kind of real journalistic, skeptical, critical thinking, that's really, you don't see much of that in journalism. And it's really hard for the general public, even people, uh, you know, people out there who have the capacity to do that, people just sometimes they don't have the time to, to do all those things. 
things. So it really is a difficult issue. And I'm glad I'm talking on This Is Hell because that's what this is, Chuck. This is hell. <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much, Bruce, for the tag. I really appreciate it. Bruce Levine, a psychologist, posted the con- Counterpunch article, Scientific Misconduct and Fraud. Check out his book, A Profession Without Reason, and find our past interview with him, uh, our most recent interview with him back in 2018 on resisting illegitimate authority at thisishell.com when you search on his name. Go to brucelevine.net to see all of his work. Thanks so much for being back on the show. It's not going to be five and a half years uh, till our next interview. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Thank you, Chuck. It was fun. All right. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. If you learned from our talk with Bruce that antidepressants can be freaking dangerous to depress people. They're better at giving you sexual dysfunction than ending your depression. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell this week on Patreon. I am so over the intentional messaging being sent with phrases like immigrant and migrant crisis when it's not the migrants and immigrants that are causing the crisis. It's free trade, globalization, war capitalism, neoliberalism, greed, cruelty, and freaking climate change's fault, not the people who are forced to flee from all those miseries the rich and powerful have let loose upon the rest of us. Also, on Patreon, you are not going to believe what we were talking about on the show 20 years ago last week, because it's what everybody's talking about 20 years later. And we will be sharing our January 31st, 2004 talk with Brian Klug, then Associate Professor of Philosophy at St. Xavier University here in Chicago and Senior Research Fellow in Philosophy at St. Bennett's Hall at Oxford. He was also U.S. Contributing or Consulting Editor of Patterns of Prejudice at the time, which is published by the Institute for Jewish Policy Research in London. 20 years ago, Brian was on to talk about his article that had just been posted at The Nation, titled The Myth of the New Anti-Semitism. And you can find out what that myth is as well as how there is no immigrant or migrant crisis if you subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with us how our listeners are responding. All right. This week's question from hell came from listener Dan K. How long can this go on? And in our Facebook This Is Hell post, we have Sloan T saying all night long. Ooh. <laughs> and then... Borky B says, until morale improves. Adam A says, how long have we got? (laughs) Pam H says, no worry, the end is nigh, I hear. And Dan T says, longer than you. TWSS, which I googled and means that's what she said. Yeah, it's so stupid. <laughs> and then our welcome from uh, welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. Dan K says, my mom will be so proud. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. And Nick E says, the, the cows came home, went out again, and returned, and it was still going on. <laughs> okay. And then we have an infograph that I cannot see, but then Craig, Craig L.A. says, until the doom of all... I or by some surprise people stop going goings on or both. I know I was having trouble reading yeah, that sorry. too. <laughs> uh, and then Kelly H says 10,000 years and uh, and then a clock uh, of, of long <laughs> clock of the long now which is a cool Wikipedia. Go to our Facebook group and you can click on that. And then uh, It is really cool. Yeah. Oh cool. 
And then, and I'm going to butcher this name, Walchek? Wojciech. Wojciech. Apologies. At least until Dr. Zaus can't stop (laughs) Heston from blowing us all up. That's a Planet of the Apes reference. Dr. Zaus. Zaus, sorry. (laughs) That's no big deal. He spelled it wrong, too, I think. (laughs) And that movie traumatized me as a child, so I don't return. (laughs) It traumatized me, too. Horribly (laughs) traumatized. It was Earth all along. And then Ronaldo M. says, Pasta Fazul. And uh, on X, I guess we're still shadow banned there. Yeah. And then and Patreon, a couple of new answers. Uh, Keith T says, until Elon's Mars colony is ready for us. Uh, Nostaref, sorry, uh, says, I'd say four months at best. <laughs> Addy says, That's I That's something ask- we don't know. <laughs> Uh, I ask myself every time Thomas Friedman writes a new article, pretty damn long. Okay. Years. <laughs> and then Old Grouch says, until we have 1% all, until uh, w- we have a 1% all and only guillotine or women revolt worldwide and overthrow the patriarchy. I know. Sometimes people type stuff and you're like, is that AI or is that chat GPT? But there's something in there that's interesting. I feel feel like I understand. Okay. (laughs) And then Dean T says, until this hell freezes over and becomes an ice in a Malox drink. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we got. I think maybe okay. on Discord there was a couple more. Oh yeah, the and on Discord Kim G says the exact amount of time it takes to count a sea slug's teeth, which is awesome. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> so as always, you can leave your answer to the question from Hell. You can still do it at our Facebook page. Welcome to Hellhole X, whatever, and on our Patreon page if you want to. And if you still get in an answer over the next ten minutes while Jeff Dorchin is doing the Moment of Truth. We will read it on air. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. And we'll tell you who our final guest of, I'm sorry, and we will tell you who our guest will be on next week's show. And something something super is happening at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting this weekend. I'll tell you about that as well. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was high. This is Hal and Becca. I know you have Jeffy on the line. What? Atheists in drag. I know you atheists are largely a courteous bunch. When I refer to the atheists throughout the following essay, I mean only the sneering atheists. There are atheists who sneer, but many of them wouldn't admit to being of the sneering variety. Then again, there are others who would proudly wear that label. Proud, ashamed, or daintily circumspect, the atheists in the following tale are the sneering kind. I am not a Christian, but to knock the atheists down from their ivory towers, I vowed I would drag them to Jesus, and I did. It took a 20-mule team. We tied the atheists by their ankles to a long steel bar, hitched the bar up to the 20 mules, and had the team drag the sneering God-deniers across the bumpy, gravelly ground on their bellies for 40 days and 40 nights until they were in the presence of Jesus. Jesus was pissed. Not at the atheists. They don't believe in him, so he sure as hell wasn't going to believe in them. Not at the mules. 
They were just doing their duty at me. Jesus was mad at me for cajoling the mules to do such an unnecessary, worthless task. Although apparently Jesus has something to do with the Grammys now. So I guess once again, I'm inadvertently trendy. No, Jesus is not white. He isn't particularly good looking either. He's no Donald Glover. Not homely though. Kind of cute. I don't know. He looks like if Jeff Goldblum and Danny Trejo had a baby. Yeah, for being only in his early 30s, he's got a face that's seen some rough weather. Sandstorms, I guess. Also, you know those portraits where he's holding up two fingers? He lost the ring finger and pinky of his right hand in a carpentry accident. Now, before all you actual Christians get offended, don't worry. I'm sure the Jesus you picture exists, too. The only reason I have any image of the dude myself is because here in the West, Christianity exerts so much power over our stories about morality. You're victims of your own success. After being dragged, the atheists got up and dusted themselves off, much the worse for wear, which is nice. Because there was visible evidence that they had been dragged somewhere. If Jesus didn't exist, I couldn't have dragged them to him, right? The dragging would have gone on for eternity. There wouldn't have been a destination. Logic, right? They're all about logic, atheists. So am I, but mostly to abuse it in the service of imagination. Contorted logic is a paintbrush. It's a hammer and chisel for the mind to sculpt its world. Some atheists understand that the global god we worship nowadays is money. Yet they still harp on traditional religions as the main cause of human strife. Is it because they consider money the one true God? Is that why they fear taking on the real religious evil of our historic moment? Money can launch a king's car into space or starve 10,000 babies. A fearsome God, indeed. I'd be afraid to critique it too if I thought anyone was paying attention. But I figure God probably isn't because her ears most likely don't exist along with the rest of her. The government and the tech corporations are listening, but they're listening to everyone, so my anti-money jibes are probably not going to make much of a dent. Besides, anyone with a really high-volume stake in the money system already knows it's BS. It's all BS, and we're all at play on a tilted playing field of our own invention. Sometimes atheists get dragged to Jesus and find no profit in it. Sometimes I get dragged before the high court of profit and receive only sorrows and stigmata. Sometimes you need science and nothing else will do. Sometimes you find yourself inhabiting, quite against your will, a narrative that is tens of millennia old. Science calls probing the source of consciousness the hard problem. Consciousness and identity don't live and grow in the brain, scientists working on the hard problem believe. That's what makes it hard. Consciousness and identity, the way humans experience them, are formed in and around the body and reach outward. Allow me to paint with my contorted paintbrush. The boundaries of identity and consciousness are undefined. They might well, or might as well, reach from one end of the universe to the other, if I can wrap the universe in such a limiting metaphor. They reach into realms religious, mathematic, philosophical, chemical, mythical, mystical, culinary, musical... Consciousness being infinite, without boundary, because the cosmos is made of it. The human consciousness bleeds into others, and others do exist. Neither do human definitions of lack of consciousness describe clouds, asteroids, nor suns. We've imagined ourselves for quite some time, quite long enough, in this jurist's opinion, as the only things awake in a sleeping, inanimate universe. We're probably wrong.
That humans act as the sense organs of the cosmos is an interesting concept, but if so, we are only sense organs for the human senses. If the human species dies out, the meaning of things might disappear with it, but there are many other kinds of consciousness, learning, exploring, and significance, of which ours is only an example specific to the way we manifest in matter. Amino acids learn to twist and link into proteins. Crystals grow according to a mathematical pattern. Does the math describe the growth of the crystals or govern that growth? Or does the crystal itself manifest from math as its own extension of consciousness, a mathematical crystal antenna of consciousness, a crystal radio, as it were? Atheists accept the current scientific narrative of a universe banging forth from a singularity. They believe in evolution, chemistry, and geology. A sneering atheist might do well to note that salts don't sneer at acids and bases for not having reacted with each other, nor do gut microbiota treat salts as inferior because they haven't yet learned to make farts. Nor has the cosmos decided that any of them is an outmoded form of matter. And so I say to you, Tiny atheists, you might laugh at and disdain the superstitious rabble. You might believe yourselves to have embraced the best and only road to truth. We as a species are all too puny for the immeasurable eyes that read the long stories of the cosmos to spare much notice of us. But the dust cloud you raised while being dragged to Jesus can be seen from space. That is the most significant thing about you. More lasting than the footprints of humans on the surface of the moon is the dusty wake of atheist faces dragged through the dirt. Nothing personal. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. All right, Jeffy, I want to make editing for Will easy this week, so... Uh, until next well, time. Good, th good thing we heard about that uh, that flaming toaster pastry <laughs> event. It was terrible. It was awful. <laughs> it almost burned my I, house down. And we really needed, a, you know. I take I take antidepressants, you know. Yeah. That so I do have explains something. Explains a lot. I guess I'll tell you another time. <laughs> All right. I mean, we're not, you know, up against the toaster. All right. Stay beautiful, my friend. <laughs> you too. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, Ottawa, Miami, Ho Chunk, Menominee, and Sac and Fox peoples, this is hell. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and do we have any more responses? This week's question from Mel came from listener Dan Kay, who wrote, How long can this go on? And currently not, not in the last five minutes. So, Dan, uh, you replied to your own question from hell. Dan Kay did. His response was, you got something to, better to do, which was one of my favorite answers this week. But I'm sorry, Dan. You're disqualified. You wrote the question. Huge conflict of interest right there. The answer I liked the most this week, and there are a lot of really good ones. Wojciech saying, at least until Dr. Zayas can't stop Heston from blowing us all up. Uh, Tom K saying, until the lease is up and they go condo. Neil C, I loved your answer until Puxatani Phil predicts a nuclear winter. That's a really good one. But my favorite answer this week goes to Sarah Hope Edwards. Uh, unfortunately for all of us, quite a bit longer than it should. Sarah, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is just mail, uh, I'm sorry, email us your mailing address and tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise that you can find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, uh, which piece of merchandise you want, and we'll put it in the mail for you 
as fast as we possibly can. So congratulations. And we really appreciate you all participating. My answer to this week's question from hell, how long can this go on? I'm going to say about uh, 90 seconds. Becca, who do we have scheduled to be on the show next week? All right. Returning to This Is Hell is Jake Johnston. He's the author of a new book called Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. Jake is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And next week, our shows will be on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. No show on, no live stream on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday next week. We hope to see you all throughout January for This Is Hell, or throughout January, now into February. We hope to see you now throughout the winter. For This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, happens every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And if you like soup, soup in a bowl, but are willing to taste many soups in sample-sized cups, join me at Carrie's this Sunday when there will be a soup competition. A bowl, if you will. A soup Bowl with doors opening at nine. If you want to enter uh, noon, sorry, if doors opening at noon, if you want to enter soup and win a prize in one of many categories, I have no idea what the prizes are. Don't know what the categories are, so don't ask. Have your soup at Carries by 5 p.m. on Sunday when the bowl kicks off. Rumor is there's a football game at the same time, but who cares? There's soup, and I'm still trying to decide if I should enter or not. Problem is, I haven't come up with a good soup yet. If you have an idea that you can share with me or a recipe you want to share with me, feel free to send it to Chuck at thisishell.com. Thanks to Becca Ridenauer for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, live from the waking nightmare that profits from misery. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me of profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.